FA listeners, due to an illness, uh, the event for Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz has been postponed. The event was scheduled to be tonight at 7.30 p.m., but due to Roxanne being ill, it will be postponed. Stay tuned now for Jack and Nina. Well, we send our best wishes to Roxanne Dunbar for a speedy recovery. Absolutely. Well, we were just discussing... Roque Dalton, the national poet of El Salvador. He was jailed five times during his life. Even that's debated in um, leftist circles because he was such a storyteller. Many of his friends weren't sure which were the stories <laughs> and which was the real thing. But poets. <laughs> poets. But I believe all of it. <laughs> and he wrote a series of poems uh, in these various imprisonments. And this one is called Prison Again. Prison Again, Black Fruit. Out in the streets and in the rooms of men, right now someone's complaining about love, making music or reading the news about a battle fought under Asia's night. In the rivers, fish are singing their wonder about the sea. An impossible dream, too good to be true. I'm talking of those fish called lily black, but actually blue, from whose spines violent, quick-moving men extract perfumes that last a long time. And the least object sunk or nailed down anywhere is less a prisoner than I. Of course, having a pencil stub and paper and poetry proves that some hollow universal concept conceived to be written in capitals, truth, God, the unknown, took hold of me one happy day, and also that falling into this dark pit, I have simply fallen into the hands of op opportunity so as to lay it out properly before mankind. And yet, I'd rather go for a pleasant walk in the country, even without a dog, September 9th. As I said, he was imprisoned five times. And one, one imprisonment was really remarkable because uh, he was supposed to be killed the next day, executed. But there was an earthquake. And so he dug his way out of the rubble and uh, jumped onto a nearby city bus and was smuggled out of the country for the rest of his life in exile until he returned. And then how he was killed is that he was killed by a faction on his own side. Yes, they thought he was a CIA, or said he was, or they disagreed. And the, the, the disagreement... In his policies. Yes. But in the end, uh, the group actually followed his line of thought. But anyway, I'm going to uh, give you an opportunity to read one of his poems aloud that I think you will enjoy. It's another prison poem, and it's called I Smell Bad. Oh, <laughs> okay. I don't know if this has any personal uh, relationship. No, 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 not to worry. <laughs> okay. We have to go to the next segment, too, after I read this, I think. I smell like the color of mourning on days when the price of flowers would make anyone sick. When the poor man dies high and dry, 
trusting that the rain will come down soon. I smell like the news of a disaster so small it's been able to keep the corpses to itself. I smell like an old disorder turned article of faith, its huge flame honored with a Ph.D. in respect. I smell like far from the sea I'm not defending myself. I have to die of something on account of this bad smell. I smell like a small wake, as I was saying, like the paleness of a shadow, like a dead house. I smell like sweating iron, like dust set out to rinse in the moon's light, like a bone left behind close to the labyrinth under the early morning smokes. I smell like an animal only I know lying passed out on the velvet cloth. I smell like the sketch of a dying child, like an eternity no one would go looking for. I smell like when it's too late for anything. Thank you, Jack. That was Jack you, reading Rocky Dalton. I have also brought in a recording that I'd like to share with you that I did about two weeks ago with a community artist, activist, Carlos Barón, and in this interview, he reads his poems and tells his story. And Erica, if you would play it, please. Well, while Erica tries to find it on the player, it's giving technical uh, difficulties. Actually, uh, while she's looking, maybe, um, Erica, why don't you put in my CD, too, which is John Oliver Simon. John Oliver Simon died recently, and I wanted to get his voice on the air, at least briefly, on this show. And so uh, I found something on YouTube, and here is John Oliver Simon talking about the old days in Berkeley and reading a poem. Good evening, my name is John Oliver Simon. The next three of us you're going to hear, uh, along with me and Richard Kresh and Charlie Potts, uh, we were active in putting together events like this in Berkeley, California, in the spring of 1968. And um, 1968, Prague, Paris, Mexico City, uh, the world underwent a sea change which is about due for another. I'm going to start off with a translation. Um, this is in my little book over there that uh, Byron printed up. This is by a Mexican poet named Elsa Cross. Um, she was born in 1946, and so this poem is also set in just about 1968 in Mexico. And uh, I'll read just a few lines in Spanish and then read the poem in English. 
It's the third section of a poem, Bacantes. Nada de tus prestigios santos. Las mujeres te esperaban como un advenimiento. Llegaste con marihuana en los bolsillos y eh, los cabellos en desorden. Quién sabe de cuáles correrías salido apenas. Y tenías algunos enigmas que responder como la reina de Saba. None of your holy tricks. The women awaited you like the second coming, and you arrived with marijuana in your pockets, your hair all tangled, barely escaped from who knows what jams. And you had some riddles to answer, just like answering the Queen of Sheba. You laughed to see them so pious, your milk sisters, and like Shiva in the pine forest, unfolding a big phallus, you seduced them under the beard of their husbands, the ascetics. And the women followed you. No curse could reach you, O smoker of intoxicating herbs. The earth, quiet, waiting as on a day of great festival. And the concheros were coming down there with their flutes and sad drums, their rattles of dry seeds, dance of mirrors under the sun, Rockets thundered in the quarter of the cross. They hung colored flags from the poles. The people staggered down the streets in drunken processions, almost falling on the uneven stones. Flares in the night, your smoky mirrors. The rockets booming like gunshots. People in love with fire. Everywhere we found rusted cartridges, powder burns on the walls. The children blew against the shuttlecocks, blew against the flowers, flying their petals to the wind. Women followed you. And that was John Oliver Simon reading a poem of translation. Um, and it was a lovely poem, I think, and a good translation. And uh, Nina, we have to go to your tape now. Yes, you could now hear the interview with Carlos Barón. Okay. I'm going to read a piece, actually, that I also published in Tecolote recently, but I first read it on top of a truck here in, in Berkeley in 1976. And it's called The Mural. And it was for a mural that was on Adeline Street uh, by Daniel Galvez about farm workers. And this poem, I, um, I will say a little bit more about it after I read it. But I wanted to write something about the essence of what is a mural. The mural. There's no admission price standing between us and these colors. There are no frames other than the sky, the rain, the sun, the people, the polluted air. There is no guard demanding not to touch, not to stare too long, not to lean against, not to piss on it. Is this a work of art? Where are the precautions? Where are the insurance companies? Where is the silence that goes hand in hand with that art that hangs in museums? Is this a work of art? Oh, yes, it is a work of art. Like us, brothers and sisters, these images on the wall have come to live among us, 
to hang out in the neighborhood, to take risks with us, to grow old and wrinkled, to die among us. This museum is not open from nine to five. This museum is always open, always free, always generous, like true love wants to be. Is this a work of art? <laughs> you better believe it. This is what it all came from. Go ask the cave people. Marvelous poem. It certainly stood the test of time, 1976, and it's just as true today. Thank you. It's interesting how I taught storytelling also for about, again, 30 years. And, and there I found the, the power of the ancestor, the idea that uh, our ancestor definitely informed who we are. And if we peruse in, in the past, we will find someone who will inform you directly, indirectly. Somehow you will say, okay, that person uh, marks a particular quality in my life. My great-grandmother was an illit illiterate peasant uh, from the south of Chile, Margarita Gonzalez. And she was even picked up and charmed by this guy who was passing by on a horse and, and, and asked her to follow him, and she jumped on the back of the, the horse, and they went to Santiago. And, of course, my great-great-grandfather, as soon as he heard this, went after them, and they had a shotgun wedding, uh, literally a shotgun wedding, because he took his shotgun with him. But anyway, this illiterate peasant, her own daughter became a teacher, my grandmother, and taught her mother to read and write. Then my mother became a teacher. I became a teacher. And my kids now are also teachers in the San Francisco Unified School District. So the tradition started, you know, because I had a great strength in her. Never mind that she couldn't read or write. But she also was, uh, I would say, kept down by her religiosity uh, or, or the fear, I guess, uh, that she had to to die, or uh, I think it's fear to live as well. And she had a, a little room next to the bathroom, and I saw her every night, and she was about to pray. She would let her hair down and, and then take her false teeth out of her mouth, put in a glass of water. So I, I, I remember that, and that was a scary image. And then she would come to my room and, and, and say, Okay, Carlitos, reza to rezo. And so I never went to church, really, but I had to do a little prayer every night for her, a little short one, right? So I wrote a poem for her. It's a short poem. It's called Great Grandmother Who Art in Heaven. The teeth of Margarita Gonzalez flash a distorted yellow-green through the glass in which they sleep at night. Margarita, 84, unties her tomato-shaped crown and a gray cascade descends down her shoulders without noise. Without noise, I peek through the semi-open door, fascinated by the contortions of the toothless face as she loses herself in the monotony of her nightly prayer. Jesus bleeds on her night table, flanked by the melting tears of two candles. Two potato peels hang on to her temples. Stubbornly, stubbornly, Margarita hangs on to her hopes of an afterlife. Anyway, I, I was thinking about maybe sharing... Um, 
odes, the, the so-called odes, odas, odes to simple things, odes to everything. He wrote odes to watermelons, to the smell of rain, to the, uh, uh, the sh shoes, to socks. He wrote to everything. So he wrote an ode, I remember, and I want to joke a little bit with the idea of the odes, and I wrote something called odes to your armpits. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a, a friend of mine, we, we spent New Year's Eve a long time ago, and then she stayed over. We were not a, a couple, so she stayed over there, and I stayed over here. But the next morning, the first day of the New Year, she came, and ah, she stretched, and she was just dressed with a little T-shirt. And when she stretched her hands behind her back, she had a very, very hairy armpits and it was like an amazing sight you know and somehow it it inspired me to write this particular poem oh to your armpits yesterday you gave me your armpits or rather you introduced them to me you looked straight into my eyes the image of a soft challenge, a semi-nude pose on your body, a semi-smile dancing on your face, a semi-mischief shining in your eyes, semi-anticipating what was about to appear. As if they were curtains of a theater hall, you slowly raise your brown arms and crossing your hands behind your nape, gave me your pair of hairy girls shameless, luscious, shadowy, aromatic, tempting your armpits. Nice to meet you. I imagined you as a child, a daring and playful little girl coming nearer with a tight fist full of mystery that would suddenly open before my boyish face, letting a captive spider run away trying to scare me, checking if I would scream or cry, testing if I deserve to be your friend. Mm -hmm. Your armpits came out the, the way the moon comes out from behind the hills, the way the sound of the ocean comes out at night, the way lovers go out to get in trouble, the way sometimes poetry comes out to possess us. That is how your armpits came out. They came out to invite me. Isn't it true? Uh -huh, to smell them, touch them, kiss them, calm them, to sink myself in their soft and warm moss, to lose myself or to find myself in their movie house darkness. Your armpits were two servings of kelp, two coquettish belly dancers, two exotic mollusks, two passports to infinity, two seashells, Two step ladders to heaven, two erotic verses. Your armpits wrote this poem. Whoa, whoa! <laughs> Neruda would have loved that poem. <laughs> I I hope so. I was asked when the uh, killing uh, and disappearance, quote unquote, disappearance of the forty-three students from Ayotzinapa in Mexico, took place in, in Guerrero about three years ago to write about one of them they gave me a name they gave me a name Martin Getsemani Sanchez Garcia the 21 year old kid and that's all that's all I researched a little bit what I could 
there's not enough about a 20 year old campesino uh, from uh, Mexico to be googled but from a rural <laughs> yeah from a rural community considered the enemy by the government so but I learned a great deal about him and I was lucky to even find a picture of his mother so I imagine what happened to him uh, and this is it Martin Martin your mother called out Martin Martin your mother called out Go and scare off the rabbits. They're eating the alfalfa. Martin! Martin Getsemani! Getsemani. Your biblical middle name from the Garden of Getsemani at the Mount of Olives, where Judah's hypocritical kiss betrayed Jesus and handed him to Caesar's warriors. Your mother's lengthy call warned your wild rabbit ears and that Getsemani, Martin Getsemani, would wake you from the reverie you were often mired in. You could no longer continue to be swathed in the delicious drowsiness of the sunny days in the fields of your childhood. Your mother's singular call meant urgency. She would use Getsemani those times when there was a nearly serious need, such as when dusk had fallen and your shadow had yet to cross the threshold of the modest ranch. On when you disappeared all day to fall asleep on the warm earth of the rancherio de Zumpango del Rio, because <laughs> you were a big old sleepyhead, Martin Getsemani. Well, a truly big dreamer. Don't deny it. Back then, you, Martin Getsemani Sanchez Garcia, would leave the warm cradle of earth where you would look at the passing of a few clouds that cross your sky and answer loudly, I'm on my way, Ma. I'm coming. This is how your cousin tells it with her coarsened voice. Yeah, my cousin Martin was always asking questions. A dreamer. Perhaps that's why they treated him that way. Everybody's voice in your family has coarsened, Martin, calling out your name day and night, yelling, praying and begging. Where are you, Martin Getsemani? Why aren't you answering? I've known dreamers such as you, people whose singing summoned a brighter day, perhaps only in their own imagination. Beloved ghosts, still full of life, full of dreams, of ideas, of questions, of the will to live and to share themselves. You surely spent hours upon hours playing among the lemon trees or in the alfalfa fields of this small family ranch, training your tiny roly-poly circus, those minuscule shiny black bugs of soil that rolled up like small silent accordions whenever they felt threatened. It's true, Martin spoke to those roly-polies, I swear. And I think those little bugs, they recognized his voice. Because when they heard him, they would stop twisting themselves into tiny balls and start running inside a little box that Martin had found somewhere. Ay, Martin. Martin Getsemani. Was that the reason you wanted to become a teacher? You wanted to rise beyond the hills, to run, to dance, to dream, and to fly. You didn't want to be a fearful roly-poly. You wanted to fly, to dream of faraway places, and then return to teach others how to fly and dream. Your friends in the fields of Guerrero, so many who could not even dream. The dream of the poor is constrained because their reality is constrained. That's how the powerful prefers it. That's how the owners of all decide it should be. 
Oh, Martin, you remind me of, of the verse in a beautiful sunset cantata written for others like you. It's dangerous to be poor, my friends. To be poor is dangerous, my friends. Dangerous. The revolution claimed that earth belongs to those who work its fields, but it didn't turn out to be so true, not, in, not only in Guerrero, but throughout the world. Few dare gainsay the owners and the bosses. It is dangerous to question. It is addictive, contagious, and subversive. That has been proclaimed by gods and bosses from the beginning of time in Guerrero and also in the Brazilian favelas, in the Chilean shanty towns, in the Gaza ghettos, or in the barrios of Oakland and San Francisco. To ask, to protest, to demand, to think, and even to love can be very costly. Martin Getsemani Sanchez Garcia arrived at a rural teacher's training college in Ayotzinapa, shouldering dangerous questions. The college was one of the many created by the Mexican Revolution to plant elementary school teachers in the pharaohs of the farm workers. The Escuela Normal, or Teacher's College, as Ayotzinapa, was always combative. During the 50s and 60s in Guerrero, men like Genaro Vázquez and Lucio Cabañas graduated from there, exemplary activists murdered by the government. The critics, the critics grunt. Oh, it's more than a school. It's a breeding ground for guerrilla fighters. It's a place that fosters hate and social class resentments. Those students are delusional farm workers who intend to reach the sky. <laughs> who do they think they are? That's what their prayers are for. They can reach the heavens with them. Martin Getsemani came to that school leaving the alfalfa fields and the lemon trees behind. Those fields that his family continues to sow to earn a few coins. The fifth son of eight children, he was thirsty for knowledge, willing to wring the sum of doubts and hopes that flooded his soul. There was such a thirst of knowledge, so much curiosity, so many hopes of reaching higher that the bosses who still rule your aching Mexican homeland were suspicious you barely lived in that school for a month the scents of alfalfa and lemon had yet to fade from your only pair of pants and your two shirts that activity you went with more than 50 of your schoolmates was your first time participating in the tasks of solidarity those chores your school considered essential for you the future teachers on that faithful September of 2014, you were heading to Mexico City, joyful, heading to the great capital of your country to remember the many young people massacred in the Plaza de Tlatelolco in 1968. But you did not get far. Hatred and cruelty laid a trap for you, which you couldn't escape. That night in the jail, all turned into flames. It became smoke. It became eternal. Teacher, Marcin Getsemani, you have not died. Those 43 dreamers have not died. Many have already said, yes, they burned them and then dumped them into a river. But if they spread your ashes on the soil of Guerrero, it's almost as if they had planted them. New seeds will spring forth from your ashes. New voices cheer your names in many languages. Throughout the world, songs are written, vivid images are painted, Poems are written, there is dancing, there is running, there is dreaming. The battle is had with your memory on our minds, helping you to live. You know what, Marcin Getsemani? I firmly believe that on that faithful day when you were betrayed by cruel compatriots, 
You had four or five roly-polies in your pocket. Come on, didn't you? Maybe you looked them. Maybe you took them out to bring you luck to go on that outing and share the adventure you had taken, talked to them about so often when you would fall asleep on the warm earth of your childhood. Isn't that true? Of course. Oh, one last thing, Martin. Send your mom a sign because her disconsolate voice continues to be heard like before. Martin, Martin, where are you, boy? Answer me, Martin. Martin, get semani. But you haven't answered her. She hears only the whistling wind. Let her know that that whistling is your caress, that you are the wind. And when she recognizes your voice in the wind, I'm coming, Ma, I'm coming. Perhaps she will be able to rest, and so will you. Thank you, Carlos Baron. This has been just a marvelous session, and I hope you'll come back to KPFA and share more of your wonderful work. Thank you so much. I wanted to give credit for the translation to Marcy Valdivieso. She did a wonderful job. She did. And we have to leave at this point, Nina and Jack. This is another one of our shows winding up. We'll be back at another first Wednesday. Wishing you the best. And thank you, Erica Bridgman. Join KPFA's Mandala Radio Collective on Saturday, February 10th, as we present 12 hours of special programming celebrating Black History and African Heritage Month from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Hear the voices, stories, music, and culture from African people in the diaspora. That's Saturday, February 10th, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., right here on listener-sponsored radio, 94.1 FM, or kpfa.org, rising in power. You're listening. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFA.